Okay, let's return to the book of Jonah. And we're going to consider the second half of this powerful story. You may remember from the first message that I compared the book of Jonah to a roller coaster. Uh, it's filled with ups and downs and twists and turns and a few really good loops in there. Uh, in fact, the last time we saw Jonah was in the end of chapter 2, and he had recently been vomited out of a great fish onto dry land. That's a great place to end right there. Uh, Chapter 2 ends, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Uh, just as a quick recap, you'll recall that God had appointed this great fish to swallow Jonah. Uh, Jonah was a prophet of the Lord, but he had run from his assignment to go to Nineveh. And so the Lord had thrown this horrific storm at Jonah's boat. He caused the sailors' lots to fall on Jonah. Jonah suicidally told the sailors, just throw me overboard. And God saved his life with a great fish. So there you go. That's your quick recap, chapters one and two. That was the whole message last time. So the fact that you just got that in two minutes. Uh, chapters one and two provided two thrilling truths about God's sovereign plans. Again, by way of reminder, God's sovereign plans are unstoppable and God's sovereign plans are praiseworthy. Despite all of Jonah's attempts to the contrary, God's plan for Jonah and for Nineveh could not be derailed. And Jonah's prayer of thanks in chapter 2 highlighted the praiseworthy nature of God's sovereign plans. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we have seen that God and his sovereign plans always work. Chapters 3 and 4 are going to present the final two thrilling truths about God's sovereign plans for us today. And here they are. Not only are God's sovereign plans unstoppable, not only are they praiseworthy, they are also demanding and they are compassionate. So today, let's finish the book of Jonah, focusing on the truths that God's sovereign plans are demanding and they are compassionate. The first verses of chapter three remind me again of those roller coasters, only this time of the kind that goes backward. Have you ever been on one of those or seen one of those? They have these roller coasters where you go the whole way through the ride and uh, everything's normal and you get to the end and the track just stops and there's no more track and you freeze there for a moment and then you do the entire ride in reverse. You do the whole roller coaster backwards. And we're about to get a very intentional sense of deja vu when we read Jonah 3, verse number 1. God's going to press the rewind button on Jonah and try again. All right, so here's take two with Jonah. Verse number 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cut out against it the message that I tell you. If you think that sounds vaguely familiar, it's because it should. Uh, chapter 1 began almost this exact same way. In fact, in the Hebrew, it looks even more identical than it does in English. Just as in chapter 1, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's the formula for divine revelation that's in all of the prophetic books. And so again, God tells Jonah, get up. I want you to rise and go to Nineveh, that great city. You may recall that great is one of those repeated words in this book that we need to pay attention to. It shows up over 14 times. And in this case, God's saying Nineveh is a great city. It is great in my estimation. The idea is it is great to God. In God's viewpoint, Nineveh is an important and valuable city, not just because of its size or political clout. And God reiterates that Jonah is supposed to go there and call out against it the message that I tell you. God stresses that Jonah is supposed to use the message that God gives to him. He stresses it. The point is, Jonah, you have to obey me. You can't flee me, and you can't mess with my message either. Jonah could not be trusted with his own message. Instead, God's sovereignty is again on display. The message is what God wants to be said. Who is in control of this message that Jonah has? God is. It's God's message. Who's in control of this mission? God is. And so we read in verse number three, also the exact same words we saw in chapter one. So Jonah arose, and this time we're supposed to be on the edge of our seat. We're supposed to be waiting with bated breath. What's he going to do this time? Because if we hadn't read the story, we have no idea actually what Jonah is going to do next. Uh, you're riding that backwards roller coaster and you're craning your neck, hoping to see where this thing's going to twist or turn. It's the exact same words. So Jonah arose, and we're waiting. And this time, thankfully, we get to see some obedience. It says, this time Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh 
according to the word of the Lord. You see the stress there on obedience? This time, according to the word of the Lord, he did it. So Jonah is described as finally obeying. And verse 3 is going to go on and describe Nineveh itself. It says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. This little phrase, three days journey in breadth, has caused no small amount of disagreement and criticism. Uh, back then, one day's journey would equal approximately 20 miles. All right? So if we're talking three days journey, we're talking about 60 miles, which would mean that we could be saying that Nineveh was either 60 miles wide or 60 miles in circumference. The problem with that is that neither history or archaeology support numbers of a walled city that even come close to that side size. And we do have records of what this, the wall was like. We do have records of the city size. And they're nothing close to 60 miles wider in circumference. So w what is the deal here? Well, many different suggestions have been offered. A lot of blood and ink has been spilt. Uh, but it seems to me the best answer is that the great city doesn't just refer to the walled part of the city, the part where people would have gone for defense, the, the inner confines of the city, but actually refers to Nineveh, the city, as well as all the suburbs that are all around it. Uh, in Genesis 10, verses 11 and 12, we have the exact words, great city, that mean just this kind of thing, a city with all of its surrounding administrative areas. So it's perfectly in keeping with other scripture to say, what it means when we say Nineveh was three days journey is that not just the city proper, but the entire area around it was this long, 60 miles either wide or in circumference. The, the point should be clear. Nineveh was a huge place. All right? That's the point of this three days journey. This is, this is not a little provincial town. This is a giant city in its day. And so Jonah enters that huge place. Verse number four, it says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. Jonah goes one preaching day's journey into the city, and he proclaims this message. He called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, considering all the trouble that it took to get Jonah to Nineveh, it's kind of ironic how little attention is given to his prophetic ministry there. There are only five Hebrew words to, to state Jonah's message to Nineveh. That's it, five words in Hebrew. I think it's eight in English. Uh, most commentators say, well, of course, there was probably more that he said, and there was more detail than that. Uh, only problem is, we can't assume that we know that his message was any longer, or even what it would be if it were longer. All we know of Jonah's message are these five Hebrew words. This is all we get. All this buildup for this great prophetic ministry, and we get five words. Even if this is, is a summary, we would have to say it is an accurate summary of the gist of everything that, that Jonah said. All he said was this, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. When it says Nineveh shall be overthrown, it's a unique verb. It means that there's something coming in the future, but it's impending. I mean, it, it is going to happen and it's about to happen. The word there, overthrown, when he says Nineveh will be overthrown, that's the exact same word that's used for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, right? This was fire and brimstone preaching like you have probably never heard in your life, right? There was nothing touchy-feely about Jonah's message. Uh, this was potent. You've got 40 days and God is going to overthrow you like he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice that there's no recorded mention of grace or hope. It's a message of doom and judgment, and that's all we get from Jonah doom and judgment and this is the message of the lord 40 days and you will be overthrown remarkably against everything you would expect to happen the roller coaster takes another twist and this short little message of doom and gloom from this reluctant prophet sparks a city-wide revival verse number five tells us and the people of nineveh believed god they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Only one day into Jonah's preaching tour and the whole city responds with belief. It says that they believed God. Well, there's an important note here. I think it's one that's easy for us to miss because I think we tend to assume that all names for God are equal. In fact, we kind of tend to just confuse God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, it, kind of all the same in our mind and, and we just substitute them freely. 
Um, but this is a different word for God than has been used throughout this whole book, and, and we need to notice this, all right? So far, it's the word Lord that's been used in this book. It's Lord with all, cap, with all caps. That's Jehovah, Yahweh God. And that's God's covenant name with Israel. It's his particular name with Israel. So it's appropriate to have been used with Jonah, all right? He was an Israelite who worshiped the covenant-keeping God. But here, it's just God. It's, it's Elohim. So why does this matter? Why, why do I say this matters? Well, because the belief of the Ninevites was focused not on the covenant-keeping God of Israel, but on the all-powerful God of the universe. All right? What the Ninevites were doing was not turning to becoming Jewish proselytes. They were not embracing Judaism. They were embracing the reality that there was an all-powerful God who was about to eliminate them. That's where their belief was. Their belief was in this powerful God. So they, they did not necessarily need to know all the details about the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Jonah didn't need in his preaching to explain all the things that, that Yahweh God had done for his people. Uh, he didn't have to do all that. He was presenting God, the powerful God, who was going to wipe them out. And that's the God that they believed. Not only was their belief immediate, it happened right away. It was also marked by action. And so they call for a fast, no more eating. They put on sackcloth, which were clearly visible signs of mourning and grief. And, and this repentance extends from the greatest of them to the least of them. So they have a repentance that is immediate, it's active, and it's all-inclusive. Even the king gets into the activity. Um, we read in verse number six, the word reached, the word, that's the message, the word preached, reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. All right, the king of Nineveh was most likely some sort of regional governor, not necessarily the king of Assyria, but the one who was in charge of Nineveh. And even the king himself exchanged soft royal clothes for scratchy and unattractive sackcloth. He humbles himself and he sits in ashes. But he does more than that. He makes a decree. Look in verse number seven. It says, he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. This is what the king said. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything let them not feed or drink water but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to god let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands this is the decree of the king he says we're all going to fast including the animals we're all going to put on sackcloth including the animals and and we're going to repent he says let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands uh, Jonah uses a word, uh, the book Jonah uses a word for violence that we're familiar with. It's the word Hamas. I don't think, because of the culture that God has placed us in, I don't think I need to do much work explaining to you what Hamas means. We know the result of Hamas all too well. This is the kind of sin that marked Nineveh. This was the kind of sin, the violence, the evil, the Hamas. This was the kind of evil that had attracted God's wrathful attention. And the king says the Hamas has got to stop. The violence, the fighting, the killing, the destruction, it's got to end. That's the king's decree. But interestingly, notice what the king's concluding words are in this decree in verse number nine. This is what the king says. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Do You notice that the king shows no certainty that God's wrath can be avoided. Do you see that? Who knows if God can do this or not? How could, how could the king not know that God was going to turn from his wrath? I mean, surely Jonah explained the gracious character of God and how God just wanted him to uh, turn from his sin and God had a wonderful plan for his life. Didn't Jonah explain that? Well, apparently not. And this is another reason to believe that Jonah's message was as short as it is in verse 4. The king actually doesn't know if God will forgive, but he's desperately hopeful that he will. Notice the king does not assume that their actions of repentance are going to guarantee forgiveness. The king doesn't say, hey, it's a one for one. All we have to do, turn from our sin, and God's going to be forced to forgive us. That's not where the king's hope is. The king is depending not on their works to guarantee success with God, but on God to be gracious. He says, I don't know if we can be forgiven, but we are desperate that we will be. We don't know if he will or not, but our hope is just that he will forgive us. There's no guarantees. But maybe God will turn from his fierce anger so we don't perish. All right? This is now the third time that the, the idea of not perishing has come from a pagan. 
You remember the sailors on the boat who didn't want to perish? Remember the captain who said, we don't want to perish? And now we see it yet again. The king says, maybe we won't perish. The interesting thing is that so far, Jonah has shown no concern that people not perish. When the pagans have wanted to avoid perishing, we find Jonah either sleeping, willing to die, or reluctant to preach his divine message. It's the pagans who say, we don't want to perish. And here's why I say that this third chapter teaches us that God's sovereign plans are demanding. All right, and we need to get this. Why are God's sovereign plans demanding? The Ninevites, including the king, had to do some good theological reasoning. Presented with God's plan to annihilate them, they were well aware of a demand. God's plan for destruction meant they had to repent if they believed God's messenger at all. There was a plan for judgment, and that plan demanded a response from anyone who believed that it was actually coming. At the same time, God's plan for grace also demanded a response. You see, the Ninevites were right to see the grace in God's message of judgment. You say, where's the message? Where's the grace in this judgment? I'm going to overthrow you. There is grace here. And the Ninevites were right to see it. What did they see? They saw that God went through all the trouble of sending them a prophet, first of all. If all God wanted to do was destroy the Ninevites, he could have done that without ever warning them. He didn't have to send somebody and go through all the trouble that he did to send someone to destroy them. He could have just done it. There was grace just in the fact that there was a prophet announcing doom. Secondly, God gave them 40 days. If God just wanted to zap these people, he didn't need to give them ample time to respond. That hope for deliverance demanded a response. That hope, there's 40 days. There's a chance here that we might be spared. The king is right to see the grace in the prophet who came and announced doom and the time that they had. And the king seizes that. And so do the rest of the Ninevites. And they respond because God's plans demanded a response. The Ninevites could not continue in their flagrant sin. God's plans, whether they're for judgment or grace, demand a response. And this is no different for us today. God's plans still demand a response. All right, so let's take, for example, God's plan for salvation in the gospel. In three different passages, the New Testament says that the gospel is something to be obeyed. Romans 10, 16, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 1 Peter 4, 17 says the gospel is something to be obeyed. We tend to think that the gospel is something to be received or something to be accepted. But in reality, the gospel is something to either be obeyed or disobeyed. God's plan for salvation is demanding. Obey my way for salvation or don't. And so chapter 3 shows us God has a plan, and that plan put a demand on the Ninevites, and they respond. But we need to turn to verse number 10, because verse number 10 is the pinnacle of this book. This is the high spot. This is the point, the action that showcases the central theme about God. God's sovereign plans are demanding, but they are also compassionate. Notice God's compassionate response to broken and desperate sinners in verse number 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I hope you remember that we also said the word evil is a very important word in this book, and it's also used with some amount of humor, and it's used in this verse as well. The word for evil and the word for disaster are exactly the same. So God saw that they turned from their evil way, and so God turned from his disaster. Same word, evil disaster. Ninevites turn from their evil. God turns from his disaster. All right. It's a play on words. It's a pun. The Ninevites turned away. And so God turned away his wrath. God did not do what he said he would do to them. What a, what a marvelous, marvelously gracious and compassionate God. What, what kindness do we see in this book of Jonah to spare so many thousands of lives? I mean, think about the plan of this compassionate and gracious God to have Jonah declare his message to a pagan people and actually have them respond. This is exactly what God pledged he would do in places like Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8. Listen to these words. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, if that's what I declare, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. 
This is the character of God. If you will just turn, I will turn from my disaster. We also see God's character from the words of one of Jonah's contemporaries in Joel 2, 12 to 13. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This gracious, relenting God is who we serve. This is at the heart of who God is, that he would be gracious, that he would be compassionate, that he would relent. It is precisely at this verse that God's greatness should be most clearly seen. And yet, regrettably, it is just at this point that certain theologians have most attacked God's greatness, and they have used Jonah 3.10 for their ends. So the liberal theologian has compared this passage with places like Numbers 23.19 and announced that there is inconsistency in Scripture. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So, aha, the critic says, uh, there it is in black and white. Numbers says God doesn't change his mind. Jonah says he does change his mind. Scripture cannot be trusted. God is inconsistent. Down with this crazy belief in inerrancy. Scripture is full of contradictions. At the same time, the theologian who wants to emphasize man's responsibility and downplay God's sovereignty also has seized on this very verse. And he says, see, God had a plan, but man successfully changed his mind with his actions. So God wanted to go one way, but the free choices of his creatures forced him to change his course. There are some who have emphasized man's responsibility that have gone so far to say that God can't actually know the future. Because if he did, then the future would be certain and man's choices would not be real. Therefore, God is simply the God of endless contingency plans. He's always ready to move to plan B once man made his decision. And they look at Jonah 3.10 and they say, and they say God planned on judgment. And then man forced God to go, ooh, man, I didn't expect that. They repented. I'm going to have to come up with a different plan. I guess I'll change my mind. Because surely God couldn't have known that they were going to make this choice. The tragedy in both of those theological perspectives is the loss of God himself. And the tragedy is only amplified when Jonah 3.10 is the proof text because the whole point of Jonah. And in fact, what we should take from this verse is that God's sovereign plans always work out. Let's not forget whose idea it was to send Jonah to Nineveh. Let's not forget who intervened miraculously over and over again to get his message to these pagan people. And let's not forget who remarkably touched the Ninevites' hearts and turned them from their evil. God has been the one planning the Ninevites' repentance all along. The repentance of Nineveh was not a wrinkle in God's plan. It was God's plan. Why does this verse say that God relented? And maybe your version even says God repented. Why did God go back on what he had announced through Jonah? The first answer is one I've already said. God's announcement of Jonah had an implicit hope of grace in it. God's end all along was repentance. And the means was an announcement of impending doom. God's sovereignty always includes the means to get to his ends. So God's ends was repentance, and the means he used was a prophet that preached doom and gloom. But God's ends were going to happen because God always works out his plans. Secondly, I think we have to factor in that at times, Scripture speaks of God in human terms. God graciously communicates to us in ways that we can understand, including language about himself. And you know this to be true. For example, you know that God doesn't have a body, right? You know this to be true. God is a spirit. So how can his eyes be on the righteous and his ears attentive to their cries? How can that be true? Because God doesn't have eyes or ears how can scripture say that god's strong right arm will win him victories i mean god doesn't actually have eyes ears arms but we need that kind of language because we tend to think in human terms in fact it's very hard for us not to bring human elements to our understanding of god so just a few weeks ago i was teaching the kids and uh we happen to be on the subject of god not having a body and i'm sure i thought i was waxing eloquent and i was communicating skillfully to young minds about how god doesn't have a body and they don't have arm, he doesn't have arms, he doesn't have legs, and I'm sure I thought I was doing a great job until one of the kids leaned over to Kathy, and he said, cool, you mean all God has is a head? 
God doesn't have a body, so all he has is a head. Uh, that's because we're hardwired to think in human terms. We, we just can't think outside of human body terms. We have a hard time thinking about God in, in ways that are outside of ourselves. We bring our own understanding of what it's like even to change our minds. So when we hear that God changed his minds, we bring in our own understanding. All right? So we think about changing our minds because we change our minds when we're forgetful. We change our minds because we're short-sighted. We change our minds because we're lacking in knowledge or wisdom. God doesn't have any of those problems. So when it says God changed his mind, it wasn't because something slipped his mind like it does ours. The best way to explain why God didn't do what Jonah had prophesied is to say that God relented. He turned back. God's sovereign and compassionate plan is magnified in that relenting, not, not despite it, but through it. This is God's compassion on display, and it was his plan. It's not just modern theologians that have a problem with this verse. However, Jonah did too. Just when you thought our roller coaster ride was over, Jonah 4.1 happens. Jonah chapter 4 puts our final thrilling truth on full display. God's plans are not just unstoppable. They're not just praiseworthy. They're not just demanding. They're also compassionate. And we're going to see how compassionate God is by seeing the opposite contrast of Jonah. All right, so God's greatness will be seen in the face of Jonah's sinfulness. Look with me at verse number 1. But, here's this great compassionate God. God turns from the disaster. But, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. I certainly prefer the footnote of the ESV here at verse number one, because if you look down at your footnote, you'll read, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Right? There's our little word, evil, again. And this time, it shows how Jonah felt about God's compassion. Jonah said, God's compassion is evil. It's disaster. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah that God was turning from his judgment. So God is turning away from his anger, and Jonah is turning to anger. So what would have grieved God would have given Jonah pleasure. And in Jonah's self-righteous arrogance, he even turns to prayer. In fact, this prayer is introduced the same way as his prayer in chapter 2. Let's look at his prayer here in Jonah 4, verse number 2. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In chapter 2, Jonah prays because he's grateful for God's grace. Now he's upset because of that same compassionate grace. In just this short prayer of two verses, Jonah says, I, me, or my, nine times. We need to let this prayer sink in. Jonah says, this is exactly what I knew would happen. This is why I ran. Do you want, want to know why Jonah ran in Jonah chapter 1? He tells you, because I knew that this was going to happen. I knew these people were going to repent. He says, I knew what God was like. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you relent from disaster. See what the king didn't know when he said, who knows if God will turn? Jonah did know. Jonah knew that this was going to happen because, you need to get this, Jonah knew this was going to happen because he knew the character of God. Jonah almost quotes Exodus 34, verses 4 to 7. It's perhaps the greatest Old Testament revelation of the character of God. God appears to Moses to show him his glory, and this is what God shows Moses. Moses says, I want to see your glory. God says, I'll show you my glory. This is my name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's the Old Testament revelation of God, and Jonah knew it. You see, steadfast love, when it got extended to Jonah, it filled him with thanksgiving. But it went to the Ninevites, it filled him with anger. And several things make this even more shocking than it otherwise would be. First of all, remember what happened in chapters 1 and 2. I mean, Jonah was the personal recipient of God's compassionate grace. Jonah himself was rescued when he did not deserve it. 
Jonah got to see God's compassion toward him. And yet instead of being able to extend that to others, he is selfish and mean-spirited. Secondly, not only did chapters 1 and 2 happen, but notice that Jonah finds, gal- finds fault with God as God really is, not as Jonah imagines him to be. Jonah doesn't just dislike Nineveh. He dislikes God, and he dislikes God's character. He can't stand the fact that God would choose to have a compassionate plan for a pagan people that were enemies of Israel. Jonah's anger is a full-fledged temper tantrum, and it's ugly, and it's raw, and it's sickening. Look in verse number 3. Jonah says, Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. In his prayer of thanksgiving, Jonah praises God for having spared his life. Now he wants God to take his life. Jonah didn't have any doubts about God being sovereignly in control. He didn't have any doubts that God was compassionate and kind. It's just that he hated God for it. Good theology alone did not mean that Jonah would live well. I am really tempted to take a rabbit trail at this point and remind you that good theology alone is never enough. Jonah did not need more information about God. He didn't need the right information about God. He had all of that, and he had it right. Jonah didn't need to become more Calvinistic. He didn't need to spend more time in prophet school. Jonah didn't even need to read his Bible some more. That was not the answer. What Jonah needed is to bow his knee to the one sovereign God and declare that all of his ways are perfect. And that's the one thing Jonah refused to do. Instead of submitting to God's character as it's clearly revealed and as he knows it to be, instead of bowing to the sovereignty of God, Jonah says, I I would rather be dead. He whines for death like a spoiled child whines for a toy. And he says, I would just rather be dead. Salvation is from the Lord, and Jonah resented it when that salvation wasn't directed at him. Jonah wanted his own way, and so he threw a tantrum. And in this case, Jonah's own way was not something small. It wasn't something insignificant. What Jonah wanted was hundreds of thousands of people to be wiped off the map. And he was furious that God hadn't done it. Jehovah's reply seems oh so understated. He simply says in verse number four, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Are you doing the right thing, Jonah? Do you have the right perspective? You say this is evil and I said it is good. Which of us is right? Who is right? And the rest of Jonah is going to answer that question for us. It's going to use a very vivid object lesson with Jonah himself to show us who's right and to show us what real compassion is about. Jonah answers God with his body language in verse number five. Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. As his prophet pouts in his booth, God continues to work his gracious plans. Jonah needed a shelter. Uh, It's a place where the temperature could easily reach 110 degrees. And so... As Jonah stalks out of the city and he sits down in verse number six, we read now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Says God appoints a plant. That's the same word we saw when God appointed a great fish. All right. The sovereign God is working out his plans. And so he sends a plant that's going to provide some shade for Jonah and the plant will save him from his discomfort. Right? Here's another word play because that word discomfort is our little friend, evil or disaster. God sends a plant to shade Jonah from his disaster. God is the one who appointed it to happen. And so we read, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Do you hear the echo from verse number one in this chapter? Remember what made Jonah exceedingly angry? Identical structure is used here on purpose. God's compassion made him exceedingly angry because it went to the Ninevites, and this plant made him exceedingly glad. When the morning comes, another twist in this roller coaster ride comes as well. Just like God appointed a fish, and just like God appointed a plant, God also appoints a tiny little worm. 
And that tiny little worm attacked Jonah's plant and killed it. It's very vivid language. Um, Verse number seven, dawn comes and God appoints a worm and it attacks the plant. So this little tiny worm mounts this furious charge against this plant, chews into it and destroys it. It's a little bit ironic that God can use both great fish and little worms to accomplish his purposes. Uh, But Jonah's shade is now withered. It's now gone. And God is going to make his final sovereign appointment. We're going to read this again. God's going to appoint something. And this time, it's not an animal. It's not a plant. But it's a scorching east wind. And it's a sun to beat down on Jonah's head. So again, God appoints. When the sun rose, verse number 8, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. All right? Can you... Don't miss, again, this is God's sovereignty in action. Who has been the one controlling these events? It's God. This is not circumstantial that Jonah's plant died. He shouldn't have sprayed with some kind of pesticide. It it wasn't that the sun happened to be really hot that day. This is God in control appointing a wind and a sun to beat down on Jonah. The interesting thing there, when it says the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, it's the exact same word that's used for the worm attacking the plant. So the worm attacks the plant. The sun is attacking Jonah and it's beating him on his head. There's a scorching east wind adding to his misery. Uh, Jonah was looking to the east for judgment for Nineveh. But ironically, he's the only one that is suffering. And in his faint condition, Jonah returns to what has become a regular prayer request of his. What does Jonah say? This is his regular prayer request. He asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Thank you, whining Jonah. Here we go again with his prayer request. I'd rather just be dead. Jonah wants to die when God saves people, and he wants to die when God destroys his comforting shade. And so God comes to Jonah with this very vivid object lesson right in front of us, and God says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Right? That's God's question. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And in Jonah's stubborn rebellion, he answers emphatically that it is exactly right to be angry over the loss of his plant. Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah says, not only is it right that I'm angry, it's right that I'm angry enough to die. That's how right I am. Jonah really cares about Jonah. He is on full display in chapter 4. I want God to be compassionate to me. I don't like it when God is compassionate to other people I don't like. And I'm right to be angry when I lose what I like in life. The interesting thing is that God asks him in verse number 10. God tells him, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. God says, you, you have pity. You The idea is tears in your eyes. You have pity for this plant. And God makes a probing point. Jonah finally cares about something perishing. But what Jonah cares about perishing is not people. It's a plant. It's something that gave him shade. God's withdrawal of grace to Jonah was unacceptable. God's giving grace to Nineveh was also unacceptable in Jonah's mind. Jonah wanted his own personal, partial God molded to his own needs and his own wants and his own opinions. And now he's going to pity a plant and not care for people. And God is really going to stick the dagger into Jonah. He's going to make the point what Jonah really cares about in contrast to what God really cares about. God stabs his finger in Jonah's chest when he says you over and over again in verse 10. The Lord says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Verse number 11 contains the clincher. Jonah cares about a plant that he didn't do any work for, that was temporary, that he wasn't sovereign over. That's what Jonah cares about. Verse number 11, here comes the point. And should not I, God says, in contrast to you, Jonah, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. God says there's more than 120,000 people there who don't know their right hand from the left. Right? This, this can't mean that the citizens of Nineveh 
didn't know right from wrong. All right? that, can't, that can't be what this is saying, although some people have said it does. Remember the king's instructions about repentance? Remember the king said you should turn from their evil and their violence? The people of Nineveh were perfectly morally aware. It's better to take this as referring to children who actually can't tell the difference between which hand is right and which hand is left. Uh, and people estimate if you had this many small children who actually couldn't tell the difference between their right hand and their left hand, we've got a population that would exceed 600,000 people in Nineveh and the surrounding areas. And God is making this point to Jonah. You care about this little plant that you didn't do anything for. Isn't it right that I care for this many hundreds of thousands of people? In a final note of irony, God adds that besides all those people, there were many cattle too. Do you see that in the end of verse number 11? Shouldn't I pity Nineveh, where there's all these people who do not know their right hand from the left, and also much cattle? That's the concluding words of the book of Jonah. They're concluding words of irony and of a piercing point. If Jonah cared so much for nature, like he cared for this plant, then surely he would care about all those cows in Nineveh. I mean, even if God shouldn't rescue people made in his image, then surely he should spare those animals. That's God's piercing comment to Jonah, and then the book ends. In vivid contrast to Jonah's petty selfishness, God is making the point that he is compassionate for people. God has a compassion for this great city of people. He, God is free to act as he pleases, and he pleases to compassionately rescue undeserving sinners. So now we have the end of our story of Jonah that drives the central theme home over and over again. God sovereignly accomplishes gracious plans. The readers of Jonah needed to know that God doesn't operate on the basis of merit. He never has, because with fallen humanity, God can't. It is impossible for God to extend favor to humans based on their performance and worth. And what Jonah needed to realize and what the Israelites needed to realize is that God shows compassion to people like those pagan Ninevites simply because they're sinners, not because they are worthy. God is the one who is compassionately gracious. God's sovereign and gracious plans are the theme of Jonah because God is the hero of Jonah. Right? The star of Jonah is not a whale. That great fish only showed up in two verses out of the 48. The star of Jonah is certainly not Jonah. His character is repeatedly displayed in this book. He is a rebellious, reluctant, mean-spirited, selfish, blasphemous, angry, childish prophet. That's who Jonah is. So if you hear the name Jonah and you think warm, fuzzy, man of God thoughts, then you haven't been reading the same story that's here. All right? This is a bitter, angry rebellious, ungodly prophet. But Jonah's character merely helps us see with more clarity how great God is because Jonah's mean-spirited unkindness is a contrast to God's incredible grace and compassion, and it shows how much greater God is. I hope you have seen with clarity the main point of the book of Jonah as, as we've studied. I hope you have seen that God's plans, you can't stop them. Those plans are praiseworthy. Those plans are demanding. And those plans are compassionate. This is who God is. Jonah puts God on display as the one who is sovereign, who is not only sovereign, but who is kind and compassionate in his sovereignty. That's the theme of Jonah. It would be so much better for us if when we think of Jonah, we would not just think about a great big whale or a big fish, but we would remember who our God is. That when you hear Jonah, you would think, I have a sovereign God who is kind and compassionate in great contrast to me and to us and to Jonah. There is a God who is compassionate. That's the point of Jonah. God is sovereign and God is compassionate in that sovereignty. But how do we take that main point and apply it to ourselves? How is this ancient story connected to our lives? Let me suggest just a few ideas for application. And I'm confident you can think of a lot more that are more personal and more direct for you. But consider these with me. Application. If it's true that God's sovereign purposes always work out and his purposes are compassionate, our first application should be about God. How can we apply this message to our knowledge of God? Well, God is God. He gets to do and choose as he pleases. It was no less godlike to destroy Sodom than it was to spare Nineveh. 
God is the sovereign one. And we must not only submit to that, but praise him for it. God's plans with individuals are always right too. Okay? It, it was right to cause Jonah's suffering in verse number four, just to make the point. Right? God caused Jonah's suffering, and that was the right thing to do. It's easy to buy into the lie that God always has to do the nice thing to be God. But it is a lie. God did exactly right by Jonah. He is the sovereign one who gets to do as he pleases. Maybe you're thinking that I've been a little bit too hard on Jonah. Uh, If you do, let me encourage you to reread the story and see his character as God clearly reveals it. The book of Jonah painfully and honestly presents Jonah as he really was. This is not a model prophet. And if we're busy trying to think good thoughts about Jonah, we're going to miss the glory of God because the whole point is that God is in control and he's compassionate and Jonah is neither. God's glory is seen in the contrast. And so for that matter, every time we think good thoughts about ourselves, despite the sin that we know is in us, we miss the glory of the cross. Every good thought that you have about yourself that is not based on God's grace deceitfully robs God of his rightful glory. God is the only sovereign one, full of compassion, worthy of praise in and of himself. Second application about sin. In our appropriate shock and horror at Jonah's ungodly lack of compassion, is it possible that we have failed even this morning to inspect our own hearts for the same sin? Are we so distanced from Jonah and are we so appalled when we see his character as it really is, that we think, I would, I would never be like Jonah. Maybe we would never say it as honestly as Jonah did, but does the same type of compassionate delight in judgment ever reside in us? Do we ever find pleasure in our declaration of hell's fire? Do we ever find smug satisfaction when a particularly pagan person faces loss? Are there certain types of sin or certain types of sinners we would gladly turn over to judgment and we would inwardly murmur if God saved them? Would you rejoice to sit in our worship service next to a converted lesbian or a man who killed someone in a DUI? Or is that so out far, so far outside the bounds of what is acceptable that you could not embrace God's compassion? Are we compassionately reaching out to people who are different from us ethnically? This was certainly a major part of Jonah's lack of compassion for the Ninevites. Can we really say that we have compassion for our Hispanic community and not have Spanish tracts or Bibles or gospel resources to point them to? Do we have genuine compassion for all the lost? I want to read you this quote uh, from a famous atheist whose name is Penn. I thought this was really powerful. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Remember, this is an atheist. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I just tackle you. And this is more important than that. Penn is absolutely right in this respect. Failure to evangelize is a failure to love. It's a failure to have compassion. So maybe we're a little bit more like Jonah than we care to admit. Here's a third application about the gospel. Maybe you're here and you doubt that God's plans are gracious because your heart continues to tell you that God is angry with you. You have an uneasy conscience before God because it's constantly calling you sinner. How can God have gracious plans for you if you carry this much guilt and shame and fear? If you're an unbeliever this morning, you are right to feel that God's wrath is on you. But his gracious plan includes the remedy to that wrath. The cross is the ultimate display of God's compassion for you because there Jesus bore God's wrath. If you will just trust the sacrifice of Christ alone, Christ will bear God's punishment for you. He'll take that guilt and replace it with peace with God. And then you will know, as all true believers know, that God's plans are gracious. Finally, when it comes to gospel application, preach it to yourself too, believer. 
God sovereignly accomplishes his gracious plans. So praise the sovereign God who accomplished his gracious plan of salvation at the cross. Praise him for what he did in history and praise him for what he did for you. Praise him that he sovereignly drew you to himself when you were his enemy and you were a rebel. Praise God that his plans for you were life in the gospel. Life you do not deserve or merit. Praise God that his unstoppable gospel plans for you will continue your entire life until you are finally and fully made to be like Christ. Be encouraged this morning that that your sanctification, your spiritual growth will reach its intended end because your God always accomplishes his sovereign purposes. Be encouraged that your struggles with pain and loss will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ because God's plans always work. Know that your faithful gospel witness will lead to the harvest God intends because God always accomplishes his purposes. Trust this morning in a God who is not just in control, but is infinitely compassionate. Let's not reduce this precious book of Jonah to a fish story. Let's not neglect it out of Old Testament fear. Let this one dominant theme beat in your head every time you think about Jonah. God sovereignly accomplishes his gracious plans. Let's all pray. Father, there truly is none like you. There is none who can sovereignly accomplish all that is in their hearts like you. There is none who is abounding in grace and loving kindness and mercy and who is slow to anger, anger that we admit we rightfully deserve. There there is none who is worthy of praise and worship and above themselves except you, O God. And we thank you for giving us the book of Jonah to put you on display. You have put your character before us and we bow before you in worship for your greatness. We long to live in obedience to this message of you, the compassionate God, the kind God, the one who is sovereign over all and will work out his purposes. We long to get in line with your purposes, even this week, even today, even in light of this message We want to line up under you and your plans for you alone are God. Give us the grace to see you for who you really are, ourselves for who we really are, and the repentance to turn from our way and trust in yours. Help us to live in obedience to the message of the book of Jonah that you are the one who sovereignly accomplishes all your gracious purposes how we praise your grace today. And we get to do that in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior.